Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'm Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So it is time for another book club. And before we get into this one, um, quick trigger warning, we're going to be talking about issues around consent, sexual assault, rape culture. Um, We're not going to go too deeply into any of that, but um, if you're not in a good place or you're not, you don't want to hear that right now, here is your warning. Come back later or don't. (laughs) 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 I'm very excited about this one. We actually, I wrote most of this months ago um, because... We are discussing a book that I'm very excited about, and it's called DubCon by activist and independent scholar Milena Popova. And it was just released in October of 2021. Um, and we got, they were like, we know who needs this book. <laughs> yes, they targeted you specifically, understanding that they knew who you were. Yes. Point blank. <laughs> yes. So this is not a sponsored episode, but we did get a free copy to review. And in in this book, it examines the role of power in sex, of uneven power dynamics in our society, and consent through the lens of fan fiction and how fan fiction can operate as a form of cultural activism. Um, and yes, I, I bet like a lot of the listeners listening are nodding like, yeah, that's, that's Andy. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you have been listening for the past six months, you know this is Andy material. Yes. It's amazing to me how many people that I'll meet which mostly is happening digitally um, these days, but they'll be like, within within days, they know that fan fiction is my thing. Like, it doesn't Everything. take long at all. <laughs> yeah, and Not I've because th- you don't automatically spew about how you need to get back to the house to read <laughs> the updated fan fiction you are following. Not because oh, of that, though. No, no, definitely not. One of my favorites just finished today, and I'm in that weird state of like, it was a good ending, but I'm really sad about it. <laughs> I'm sad it's over. Oh no, it's one of those. <laughs> yes, yes. And actually, uh, I was thinking about this. I've been reading fan fiction for almost two decades now. So I have seen a lot of things change and I'm going to be talking about that throughout because this is kind of like something I feel pretty well versed in and that I can discuss um, and that I have thought about a lot. And actually for this episode, I talked to two friends about um, fan fiction and how we've seen fan fiction change and and what, how Dubcon has changed. But yes, this book really delves into how fan fiction can address issues of representation in popular media, as well as dominant cultural ideas around things like sex and consent. And yes, fan fiction is a flawed space that can reinforce unhealthy and harmful ideas. It is also a space where we can, it is a tool for social change. It can be used as a tool for social change. Popova specifically uses three popular fan fiction tropes, the arranged marriage trope with Marvel, the Omegaverse with Supernatural, and real person fiction with hockey players to analyze what these tropes say about um, rape culture and consent, particularly when it comes to girls and women. And yes, as a reminder, fan fiction is a space that was, for the most part, created by marginalized folks and is written and read by marginalized folks, a majority of them women, girls, and non-binary. Anyway, (laughs) 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 you can see our past episodes on fan fiction, which we reran kind of recently. We also talked, well, I also talked about it in Women Writing Romance, the episodes we did on that. Um, So let's start with some really quick definitions. First, fan fiction is what it sounds like. It is fiction written for pre-existing fictional properties in this context, typically for free. 
um, posted online where the community aspect is really key. People can review or comment, um, interact with each other. Most people who read fan fiction are familiar with the fandom, though it's not always necessary. I actually find this really, really fascinating about people who read like Star Wars fan fiction who don't really know much about Star Wars at all. I'm like, oh, interesting. Some of the largest fan fiction posting apps and sites are, yes, AO3, um, Archive of Our Own, fanfiction.net, and Wattpad. So for this research, Popova relied primarily on AO3, where authors use tags to make their work searchable, and I love the tags. I love them. They're often hilarious. Yes, and she tells us about them often. <laughs> I know. I grew up on fanfiction.net, so AO3, which is now my preferred one, is sort of a new, like this tagging system is new for me. So I'm just still in that phase where I'm getting a kick out of it, even though it's been years at this point. But I'm still in the new phase, Samantha. (laughs) Um, Okay, so DubCon stands for dubious consent. And this encompasses a wide variety of situations, some of which we're going to get into, um, those tropes that we talked about, in which there is some or many inherent power dynamics at work where consent is questionable at best. Um, One extreme example is the f*** or die trope, which we have discussed before, in which the characters have to have sex or die. The circumstances do not really allow for true consent. As we discussed in our book club of Ace, this whole idea has been weaponized when it comes to our legal system and even just not believing women when they say whatever they say. But it's something that we have to talk about. Um, And also some listeners have written in about their dislike of the related term non-con, which stands for non-consensual because people, they feel like people should just call it what it is. Um, Others have written in that they said that they appreciate this term because it helps them know what to avoid without getting triggered necessarily. And you you can use tags to prevent what does show up. So if you're like, I don't want anything with this in there, you can use the tagging system to do it that way. But that also does depend on people tagging things correctly, which I... I think is one of the most interesting parts of this conversation and something we're going to get into. Also, something that I have seen lately, I feel like non-con for a long time meant rape. But now, non-con can be used, people are using it for non-consensual touching or like a wide, much bigger range of things than it used to mean, which I find really interesting. Hmm. So do people avoid putting that in there because they do want people more and more people to read it? Or is the fan fiction world pretty considerate? The fan fiction world, in my experience, is very considerate. I know there are outliers. I never want to say that there's not some toxic stuff in there because there is. But I think, especially lately, the evolution I have seen, especially with non-con and dubcon, well, especially with dubcon. Dubcon has gone from being kind of romanticized to now it is a very much negative, squicky thing. And people will hopefully politely um, or nicely or, you know, not rudely or meanly, but but they'll tell you, like, you need to tag. If you don't have dubcon or noncon in there and they think you should, people will tell you that you need to put it in there. And um, for the most part, I feel like in, again, in my experience, which I am in a very, like, narrow bubble. (laughs) I have, I've, like, gone far and wide, but uh, right now I'm in a pretty narrow (laughs) bubble. People will listen, and they'll, like, I've seen, like, eating disorders is one. Um, People will say, like, this is kind of disordered eating. Can you tag it? And people will update the tags. But it's constantly, like, this conversation people are having and having to be really aware of what they're writing and how that impacts other people, which is... 
it that's definitely changed from when I was younger, but uh I appreciate it. I feel like it's very considerate space in that in that regard. Okay. I didn't mean to take you down that path. Sorry. Because I'm like, <laughs> this is a whole different conversation. Again, we've talked about uh, fan fiction before, and you and I mm-hmm. had a sit-down interview, and we've even talked about, like, chips. I'm starting yes. to learn. I'm starting to learn. Yeah. Have I jumped into this world? No. But <laughs> I live vicariously through you, so. You yes. Know, I do have questions <laughs> I sometimes. I can't help not talk about it. Well, it's like, oh, it helps me figure it out. I'm like, okay. I have outside interests, and then I move on. I love it. (laughs) So the book, coming back to, opens with several upsetting modern quotes about consent and rape culture and the role that pop culture plays in it. So here's a quote. Feminist scholars and activists see popular culture, including pornography and romance novels, as a key source of our dominant ideas about sex and consent. Popular culture is where we learn that pulling pigtails is a sign of affection and that rejection is an invitation to keep making bigger and bigger romantic gestures. However, even though culture can reinforce many of the harmful ideas that feminists have identified as contributing towards sexual violence and rape culture, it also has the potential to drive change. Audiences, after all, aren't passive and don't always read popular culture in exactly the same way. We bring our own ideas and experiences to it, and we interpret it and shape it as much as it shapes us. So, What do audiences do with media and culture that tell us that potentially coercive sexual situations are normal, romantic, or in Nicola Gavi's words, just sex? Yeah, and I want to say here, like, we're talking about fan fiction, obviously, but Dubcon does exist in other media. This is just sort of a fan a fan fiction term that has been used to identify it and be like, hey, this is kind of problematic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was just thinking about some of the books that I used to like younger and coming back to like, oh God, that was that was not good. Like Gone with the Wind being there's so many problematic things, but essentially he rapes her and we're all like, Oh, he's so manly, that's so romantic. And then they're like, Wait, what? What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. See, I didn't see that until I was older and I'd never read the book and I remember being like, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I'm looking around the theater like, uh... So Popova also shared one of the catalysts behind this book, like one of the the reasons that it it got written. Um, Quote, about a week into the UK's 2020 COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, I found myself explaining to a stranger on Facebook that they didn't actually have to have sex with their partner with whom they were currently in lockdown. This person, after complaints from their partner that they weren't having enough sex, had constructed an elaborate tracker in their bullet journal. When were they having sex? How often? What kind of sex? Who had initiated it? Do I, they asked, show this tracker to my partner so they see that actually I initiate sex just as often? What I tried to get this person and later my Twitter followers to understand is that it didn't matter how often they had sex or who initiated it, that it would, in fact, be okay if they never had sex with their partner again. I am honestly not sure if they believed me. Do you believe me? What was your first reaction when you read that? But they're my partner. Of course I have to have sex with them sometimes. But they want it. But they need it. But if we're not having sex, then we're obviously just friends with no benefits. But they'll leave me. But they won't do the washing up. But I want it. But I need it. But if they never want to have sex with me again, I'll leave them. 
here's something else that might be hard to process. For sex to be truly consensual, never having sex again has to be a meaningful, available option. Can we talk about, of all the things, which is atrocious in itself, the statement, but they won't do the washing up? Yes. I find one of the most disturbing things I've ever heard. Yes. Yes, me too. But I feel like I've heard that from people before, like this transactional... They're going to be mad if we don't have sex. And they're going to take a, take it out on me one way or the other. And it's, I don't know. I've heard that before. And it is very upsetting. It is very, very upsetting. Like, in my mind, I have made jokes. Like, if you do this, I'll do this type of thing. Being a joke. But that right. was not a promise. And, right. and maybe that's the conversation I need to think about in my head. I'm like, maybe this is not something to joke about. Because even though, again, between my partner and I or whomever I was with at the time, it wasn't a big thing and it wasn't Mm -hmm. transactional. It wasn't a promise and it wasn't a bargain. But hearing, seeing that and hearing that, it's like, holy s***, what? What just happened? Can we talk about this level of uh, servitude? Yeah. In, In essentially in a way that is literally keeping as if like this person owes you sex in some way or form, which again is not consent. Yes, exactly, exactly. And we've talked about that before too, of like even when that whole idea of if somebody, which I think this is kind of fading away, but if like a dude takes a lady in a very hetero sense on a nice date, then and he pays for it, then sex is owed or expected. And um, I I don't have necessarily an ex- an experience like that, I've definitely felt pressured before because somebody did something nice for me and I'm like, that's probably what they want, which is not healthy line of thinking. But I did, um, this one guy once, he, like, we were going on a couple of, I didn't know they were dates, but in his mind, they were dates. And he was like, well, after you wore that dress at this nice restaurant, I knew we were dating. And I was like, oh, no, okay. (laughs) But just things like that (sighs) were the, like... Yeah, there are these expectations around it. Well, again, it, this is, comes back to the fact that even law, even the states and, and different types of judicial systems slash uh, law enforcement really do think that this law that you owe your husband's sex, and when I mean law, I meant the fact that for the longest time, uh, marital rape wasn't acknowledged, yep. and even in some areas still isn't, mm-hmm. to like that point of literally saying and then having, oh my God, so many men's activists continually trying to say women owe them sex, having sex with your wife is obligatory or wife having sex with their Mm -hmm. husbands is obligatory. And yes, uh, they should be able to give it up whenever it is requested and Mm -hmm. it is the duty of the wife. And that type of mindset, the fact that it still exists and is perpetuated, again, is this conversation. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Popova touches on that in in this book. And I'm glad you brought up the kind of like men's right activists because that's, yeah, that's also another part of sex being owed and being expected from women, women being put into this like gatekeeper role where they're the ones like being cold or frigid. Right. Or, or, you know, even on the reverse side of being slutty and then therefore worthless and you don't want to be with her. Um, like that responsibility is on women, which we're going we're gonna to talk about more 
<laughs> in a minute. Um, this book does dig into examinations feminist scholars have had over the years about consent and these more subtle power structures around it, including in the context of relationships, whether it's Catherine McKinnon arguing that, quote, the way women and girls are socialized in a patriarchal society means they think of their bodies as for sexual use by men, or Lois Pinot arguing that for Western culture, things like what women are wearing or whether they've accepted a drink or a meal, yeah, is sometimes viewed as a commitment um, to generally penile vaginal sex. Or how in our more modern times, prominent people in the media make fun of asking for consent before kissing or touching someone because um, it ruins the romance or whatever. And that for young folks and especially women, that in turn sometimes might make it harder for them to say no because they feel like, well, I'm going to ruin the romance or I'm going right. to whatever it is, these toxic messages they're getting. There are so many shows, modern shows, that still perpetuate this and call themselves feminist shows that you're mm -hmm. like, okay, um, maybe we don't put that narrative that where we teach young girls, young boys that uh, they need to just grab them up and kiss them. Right. Let's talk about why that's bad and that's not romantic in the way you think, especially when you do it in a manner that doesn't explain the actual relationship between two people. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that... <laughs> That has been really interesting, too, because, you know, the nature of fan fiction is, yes, like, we're writing fiction about all these older properties, perhaps. So, like, I find it really interesting that if anybody does the the scene from Empire Strikes Back between Leia and Han, where he kind of, like, corners her and kisses her, that's labeled as dubcon. Like, that is something that people have marked and been like, this wasn't good. <laughs> it's not good, friends. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. true. And so let's talk about, and we're not going to go into this, but for those who have gone through sexual trauma and having that happen, it's mm -hmm. not cute. No. Not romantic. No, not romantic. it's not. No, right. it's not. <laughs> so all of this impacts how we think romantic relationships should be and what we should be going for. Yes, I think for the longest time, I had those narratives of gone with the wind and uh, ridiculous romances that you're going to be swept off your feet against mm -hmm. your will. Yeah. And that's romance. Cool, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, at best, this strongly discourages us from exploring some less uh, normal feeling relationship arrangements that might actually be right for us. At worst, it can trap us in dangerous situations. And that was a quote uh, from the book. And yeah, absolutely. Especially when you feel like you have no other choice, as in you can't consent your way out of it as well. Meaning like, I don't want this to be able to say I don't want this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's worth making the point. These messages are strong. They are powerful. And we are getting bombarded with them at a very young age. Yeah. So it's hard to unlearn all of like what popular media has told you is romance. It's very, very hard. And I feel like for me, I'll, that kind of results in a... There are a lot of reasons for this. It's not just pop culture. But... It is a piece of it of like, I literally feel like I can't say yes or no. Like, I, and I don't know what I want. I get like frozen in that moment of I'm not sure what's the safest thing to do is. And that's like the thing I think before of what I actually want is safety. Right. And that's, yeah, 
that's not <laughs> good. That's not consent. That's not true consent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all of this also impacts how we think sex should go, whether it's what counts as sex, how it should start, how it should proceed and end, how much sex you should be having, which is very dependent on your gender and heteronormative scripts, and extremely damaging conversations around Yes, yeah, what was she wearing? Has she had something to drink? Um, Popova argues all these dominant ideas come together to make something quite toxic. Um, Quote, One utterly uncontested indicator of consent, though, is if we initiate sex. If we start it, we must both want it and consent to it, right? Anything else would be unthinkable, unimaginable. Hopefully by now we've already begun to see the cracks in the story because we should be having a certain amount of sex so society tells us, and we should be having sex in a particular way. So what if we don't want to, but we should, and so we initiate it anyway. Not true consent. Right. So a huge part of this conversation is the media that we consume and messages we are bombarded with from systems like education or the government. Uh, To make this point, Popova cites the work of Black feminist theorist Patricia Hill Collins, who argues that, quote, controlling images or images we see and reproduce over and over again have been and are used as tools of oppression and particularly here oppression of Black women. We know this. And the work of Bell Hooks, who championed the significance of a critical voice for marginalized people and communities Telling our own stories instead of reproducing dominant stories used for oppression, these controlling images. So I think that's really important. It's about finding voice, taking control, and trying to rewrite the narrative, which has so often oppressed specifically Black women, women of color, Mm -hmm. people who are marginalized. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Critical voice is something that is done within communities and requires paying attention not just to our own experiences, but also the experiences of others. So important. Art Mm -hmm. is one avenue of developing a critical voice. Yes, and Popova writes, discursive resistance is about making the unthinkable thinkable and the unnameable nameable, the unsayable sayable. Only when we can do these things can we actually meaningfully act and fight for the material change in the world. It's not until we can intelligibly articulate that for yes to be meaningful, no has to be an equally available option that we can identify those spaces where that might not be the case and start doing something about them. Okay, so how does fan fiction play into all of this? Well, (laughs) quote, ultimately this book argues that fan fiction is among the forms and spaces in popular culture that have the potential to make significant contributions to conversations around gender, sex, sexuality, and consent, and that the fan fiction community's engagements with issues of sexual consent can be viewed as a distinct form of cultural activism. The use of culture to challenge dominant ways of thinking and to imagine and even enact alternatives. The production, circulation, and discussion of fan fiction, a kind of communal textuality, allows the community to enact a discursive resistance to dominant ways of thinking by forming powerful alternative imaginaries of sexuality and consent. Fanfiction communities also establish a praxis of consent through practices that encourage active engagement with consent issues and center the well-being of survivors of sexual violence, thus enacting within community spaces what a world free of sexual violence might look like. 
Popova continues, This is what we talk about when we talk about fan fiction, a literature created by and for a community together, writing based on other works in ways that expand, challenge, rewrite, and fill in the gaps in these works. Stories that are constantly in dialogue, not only with the originary work, but also with each other and with culture more generally. And like all stories, when we read fan fiction, we bring our own experiences and interpretations to it, and sometimes we walk away changed. So yes, let us get into fan fiction and some examples and how it relates to all of this. Oh, I'm so excited. All right. (laughs) So let's start with a quick note about Slash, which I know we've talked about a lot. Um, This is a relationship between two male characters. Generally, that's what it's understood to be. So it would be like Harry slash Draco, Drary, as it's called. The overwhelming amount of Slash written by women... And what was once thought to be straight women um, has long perplexed academics looking into it. They're like, why are these straight ladies so into two men banging? Um, it turns out the fan fiction community is much queerer than originally believed and that the answer is much more nuanced, complex, and varied. One of the popularly held theories is that women writing two men together, this is a way for them to imagine what a truly equal partnership free of structural gender inequality could look like, or evening the playing field when it comes to sex, romance, and relationships in the face of a gendered power imbalance. Popova argues, though, that while this might be a part of it, it's not the whole answer because there are so, so, so many slash fan fiction where the relationship dynamic is anything but equal. So... Popova outlined three of these such relationships in fan fiction. So there's the Alpha, Beta, Omega, or the ABO universe, the arranged marriage trope, and the real person fan fiction. There's an example from real person fan fiction to demonstrate uneven power dynamics in terms of sex and systems and slash. So let's start with the Omegaverse, which I know we talked about briefly in our women writing romance episode, and I was very nervous about it because I had this kind of perception of it. And since then, I've read a few, um, and I'm not scared anymore. (laughs) Um, But yes, this is one of the main fan fiction tropes Popova examined in this book and extrapolated out of this trope what it says about consent. And yeah, so this is the Omegaverse ABO genre. Popova writes, uh, these are the stories that seem to me to be asking such questions as, what does it feel like to negotiate power dynamics in a relationship? Where do power dynamics come from? How can individuals challenge them? And what happens if they don't do that? What does it take in a sexual and romantic relationship to negate or at least minimize those power dynamics to the point where individual agency and individual consent can be considered meaningful. And the slash subgenre that asks these questions most impactfully and most viscerally and provoked the strongest reaction was the Omegaverse. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so let's, let's step back a bit for a little refresher here. Um, so this is believed to have originated within supernatural real person fan fiction or fiction, which we're going to get to in a second. Which but I he- had to look up. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to talk about it. Um, here's a quote. Characters in the Omegaverse have a secondary gender. This may be Alpha, Beta, or Omega. Betas are effectively normal, everyday humans as you know them. Alphas are socially and in some interpretations biologically dominant, whereas Omegas are submissive. Combining the primary genders, male-female, and the secondary genders, Alpha, Beta, Omega, 
means that in the ABO universe, there are effectively six genders, male alphas, betas, and omegas, and female alphas, betas, and omegas. Other common elements in Omegaverse stories include human anatomy, sexuality, and social behavior altered to resemble that of dogs or wolves, including a heightened sense of smell, mating cycles, or heat, and male alpha characters having a penis similar to a canine's, male pregnancy, and a potentially lifelong psychic bond with a partner. The vast majority of stories in the setting focus on male-male relationships and particularly on the male alpha, male omega configuration. Some fans and fan study scholars have argued that this gender configuration and focus on one particular type of pairing shows that ABO fans have an essentialist approach to gender. That is, they think of gender as purely biologically determined. But a closer look at Omegaverse stories shows that writers and readers interpret the extent to which the six genders are anchored in biology as opposed to socially constructed very differently to one another. Unsettling and moving away from a biological view of gender is, in fact, a key theme in many ABO stories and one of the aspects of the subgenre that allow it to examine issues of consent in complex and interesting ways. Many readers and writers object to its roots in bestiality fiction or to the extremely gendered power imbalances at the core of the setting. Some fan communities have even dubbed the Omegaverse dog f rape world, showing a concern with issues of sexual violence and consent in the setting. Dang. That's intense. Yep. <laughs> However, Popova makes the argument that the Omegaverse tackles and challenges sexual scripts and how what we culturally understand and think about sex influences how we have sex. Quote, In Western societies, the dominant sexual scripts are highly gendered and heteronormative. This means sex is generally seen as happening between one cisgender man and one cisgender woman, and who gets to do what is determined in part by the person's gender. We tend to view men as active in sex. They initiate it, they actively move through the steps of the script, while women, on the other hand, are passive gatekeepers. They get to say yes or no to men's advances, but the dominant sexual script allows them little agency beyond that. We are exposed to these cultural scripts through conversations with our peers, through some kinds of sex and relationships education, and crucially through popular culture. We can find supportive communities such as queer, feminist, and BDSM spaces where we can collectively acknowledge that something is wrong, not with us for being different, but with the cultural scripts as a whole. And Popova goes on, the distance created by the unfamiliar settings allow us to use ABO stories to ask questions about the power structures and inequalities around gender and how they map onto intimate relationships. Looking at such stories through the lens of sexual script theory, in turn, allows us to understand both the similarities and differences they present to our own world and what those might say about sexual consent. The Omegaverse's supposed biological or social constructions of different genders and sexualities leads to sometimes radically different and sometimes strikingly similar dominant sexual scripts in the societies depicted in ABO fan fiction. It is how such stories explore and manipulate these scripts and how their characters negotiate the disjunctures between the dominant scripts and their desires, and that makes them interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I've read a few of them now. I'll f I find them very upsetting, but they're meant to be upsetting. But definitely, like, being an Omega generally is something you do not want. Um, and okay. you, like, try to hide. And sometimes in some stories, they'll even take, like, hormones to try to— Is that to... why they make Jensen—is is Jensen the favorite? And so, therefore, they make him <laughs> not the Omega? 
and no. like uh, <laughs> oh, I have a lot of thoughts about that because I, I find that interesting because in the show he is, and I know this is real person, which is the other part. It's like, wait, what? Wait, mm-hmm. what? Wait, yeah. what? Yeah. Um, that I was like, he is absolutely. I'm confused. Like, there's so many things that I'm confused about. I think it's a lot of a lot of different things going on there, and we're going to talk about some of them. I think one of them is actually no joke size, just the size difference. Okay, because that, that is, is an shorter physical okay. power dynamic difference there. I think women, since women are largely writing fan fiction, the Omega is usually the one they're connecting with the most. Whether that's because of <laughs> it could just I'd simply be like hotter. Or it could be like they have empathy or they're, there's just some reason they're connecting with that person more. Then I think that's the person that's probably the Omega. And usually the ones I have read, the Omega, it's seen through their eyes. Um, it's told from their point of view. Okay. Um, but yeah, so as, as Samantha was alluding to, I could not talk about um, some of the quotes included in this book about the supernatural real person fiction um, that originated the Omegaverse because I did find it really interesting and it gave me a lot of thoughts. So here's one. In all three stories, Jared is the alpha, Jared being the actor, Jared Padalecki, and Jensen is the Omega, the actor, Jensen Ackles, who plays Dean. In real life, Jared Padalecki is taller than Jensen Ackles, and this physical difference may have something to do with the writer's artistic choices. An important part of the premise of each story is also that Jensen has either never had sex or relationship with a male alpha or has stopped doing so some time ago. All three stories are written in a very close third person from Jensen's point of view, and two are written in the present tense. In both slick and heat between you and me, alphas are clearly the dominant and privileged social group, and all two stories at least hint at omegas being oppressed or marginalized in some way. Sure to lure someone's bad, by contrast, shows us a society dominated by betas, in which both alphas and omegas are relatively rare. But even in this society, alphas are seen as domineering and omegas as submissive, and that submissiveness is viewed negatively. It goes on... So the idea that women are, quote, naturally more caring takes about three articulations to translate to the economic oppression of women. There are several possible ways to resist this. We could, and this is roughly the strategy Jensen adopts in short to lure someone bad, say, quote, women might be naturally more caring, but this particular individual woman is an exception and should therefore be allowed to be a doctor rather than a homemaker or a nurse. We could question why qualities associated with femininity, such as caring, are systematically undervalued. Feminists have a long history of campaigning for wages for housework, for instance. Or we could question the whole idea of biology determining gender or personal characteristics. The latter two approaches, especially when used together, are much more likely to lead to long-term social change. But they are also much more difficult to implement, especially because we are all deeply immersed in dominant ideas of gender. And here's one more quote about it. The extreme version of the alpha and omega stereotypes would have us understand omegas in heat as seducers and alphas as helpless and out of control when confronted with that. Think again about the male sexual drive discourse and associated rape myths. Quote, she was wearing a short skirt and I couldn't help myself. But even though Slick shows us a society that completely accepts this portrayal of alphas and omegas, it also shows us through the character's experiences that the reality might be rather different. 
Jensen here is not depicted as a seducer. He has, in fact, done everything he can to avoid going into heat in the first place. His heat does not put him in control. It makes him vulnerable. And far from helpless and just following his urges, Alpha Jared is in complete control of both himself and the situation throughout. By the end of the story, Jensen has no choice but to reluctantly conform to the dominant sexual script. He is legally owned by Jared and probably pregnant, leaving him trapped in an abusive relationship. The legal and social framework around him completely negates any agency he might try to exercise in negotiating consent. Yep. That's rough. That's rough. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just wondering. Yeah. There's so many things in my head. I was like, this is not... Huh. Huh. (laughs) I have a lot. I've actually thought about this a lot now. I have a lot of thoughts about it. But yeah, I mean, most of them, it is... You want to find a good alpha. Um... Because a lot of times you mate for life and they have that psychic bond thing can really screw you up. So you want to find someone who's actually like nice and going to listen to you and wants to protect you. But it, it's still like that uneven power dynamic. It's still like a dependent on the protection of this person. And people really don't care what, in general, what happens to Omegas. They're kind of viewed as like property. Um, Popova also goes into how some of these uh, stories could be a way of dealing with biological responses of arousal when sexually assaulted and navigating consent in relation to sexual scripts, these scripts that we've all absorbed. All right, so let's talk about the arranged marriage trope, which Popova examined through Marvel's Thor Loki slash, which I have not... seen that either. So, (laughs) they said, look at the words used to describe the less powerful partner in this ostensibly same-gendered arrangement, queen, wife. This conversation highlights not only that marriages tend to be unequal arrangements, but also suggests that inequality in marriage is deeply gendered. Wives are worse off than husbands. Some fanfiction readers and writers are clearly aware of the problems within the institution of marriage and how it can be a tool of oppression. So, how do arranged marriage fanfiction stories depict marriage as an institution, and how do they tackle the inequalities it produces, reproduces, and amplifies? Popova goes on, fanfiction readers and writers then use both the stories themselves and the paratext around them to highlight how marriage consummation, which we tend to see as normal, is at least potentially problematic and coercive in some context. And because the sources of inequality between the partners are both legal and cultural, this recontextualization of marriage consummation as potentially coercive allows readers and writers to question both the legal and cultural foundations of marriage as an institution that they may have been taking for granted. For the less powerful partner in each of these marriages, then, refusing to consummate the marriage is not really an option. This is why we see Loki in 17 push for consummation, even though he does not actually want to have sex with Thor. And that, of course, is not meaningful consent. So what would it take to enable the partner with less power in a relationship to genuinely, meaningfully consent to sex if they wanted to? The answer we get from these stories is emotion work. Emotion work performed by the partner with more power to build a relationship, establish trust, and above all, create a space where refusal to consummate would be heard, respected, and meaningful. Continuing on, what we are beginning to see from both arranged marriage and Omegaverse fan fiction is that not all slash fiction is about equality. At least some slash is a literature of negotiated inequality. It asks and tries to answer this question. If we live in an unequal world in a society that structurally treats some of us as lessers in various ways, what can we do in our individual intimate relationships to negotiate and minimize those inequalities? 
And if those inequalities affect our ability to consent, then how do we get to a place where our consent can be made meaningful again within the coercive structures we live in? Yes, I have read many an arranged marriage trope fan fiction. <laughs> um, it's, it's quite popular. <laughs> Was it all Star Wars? Most of it is Star I will say, like, before Star <laughs> Wars, Harry Potter was my big one. It's huge in Harry Potter. Like, it's been years since mm-hmm. I've read Harry Potter fan fiction, but it is huge. Mm-hmm. But it is big in Star Wars. It's very big, like, the Mandalore, Din, Din Djar and the Mandalore and Luke Skywalker, for some reason, have to get married. Mm-hmm. And then all the heartfelt conversations that have to take place and painful conversations that have to take place. And then they <laughs> fall in love anyway. Uh, <laughs> I could do like such a like bingo <laughs> card of what you'll see. I thought you started one. I do have, I have all, a lot of terms ready to oh, go, okay. but I haven't actually made it. But I've, oh, okay. I've been thinking about it for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did briefly want to touch on real person fiction, which I've like kind of been switching back and forth between what I call it, because I often call it real person fan fiction, but it's real person fiction or RPF. So that's, you know, stories written about actors or, or real people um, in these fan fiction settings. Uh, and I don't have much experience with this world. I do, some listeners have written in about fiction that they write for it. Uh, and I, I wanted to include this because I thought it was interesting because the story that, Popova kind of examines, looks into what happens when a fan fiction community, when something from the real world impacts it, especially if, in this case, we're talking real person fiction. So here's a quote. The hockey RPF community used a range of RPF canon construction techniques in their evaluation of the rape allegations against Patrick Kane. By bringing in community members' own experiences of sexual assault in the criminal justice system, they constructed a version of the complainant um, left nameless, faceless, and voiceless by measures ostensibly intended to protect her that they could empathize with and whose credibility was boistered. The district attorney's professional reputation, use of loaded language, and possible political motivations were used to construct three different versions of him. All of these characterizations were used to humanize and give face to the law, allowing hockey RPF community members to engage with and challenge the criminal justice system in complex and nuanced ways. So this was, it was really interesting because it was a, Patrick Kane was a hockey player, is a hockey player, had these allegations, rape allegations, and then that kind of community had to deal with, well, how are we going to talk about it? How are we going to handle it? So in this space and in this particular case, several of the stories challenged the law and the way cases like this are treated and prosecuted, and especially in terms of sexual violence and kind of the flaws there. So it was really interesting. So in the RPF community, Mm -hmm. is it a big sports network of community? Sports? Because I'm very surprised to hear that hockey is as focused in all of this. Yeah, no, actually, I was too, but I'm pretty sure several listeners have written in about being a part of the the sports RPF community. And actually, your letters are really interesting. I hope you're still listening because a lot of them talked about how it was a, they kind of got double judged sometimes because um, sports is seen as a more masculine, right. fanish activity, whereas fan fiction is very much a more feminine right. fanish activity. And so it was kind of like, 
the, everybody was looking at them kind of skew almost. <laughs> it was right. sort of the, what they described to me is what it sounded like. Um, but that it was it could be very supportive and people were really passionate in it. I think I've said this before, the, the biggest... Celebrities are pretty big, but I would say the biggest part of RPF is definitely um, musicians. Musicians. Yes. And Wattpad for a while was like One Direction. All of Wattpad was One Direction. <laughs> is it now BTS? Probably. Probably. I would a be listeners. To see. I know. So a listener has written in about a BTS fan fiction they that's were working amazing. on. Yeah, that's awesome. No, like I said, I wrote, I wrote one. I wrote, I wrote one about Billy, Billy Joe Armstrong that's from right. Green Day. Green Day. Yeah. Your no. love of Green Day. I love I this. <laughs> it's very interesting. I like this mix. Uh, it, it's like one of those moments of like, huh, interesting to see it being placed on real people that actually exist. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they read them. Oh, I somebody wrote one about me and sent it to me, and I loved it. it okay. Awesome. Didn't Misha Collins have, like, didn't he actually read one of his own or something on, <laughs> on like, that, I, that Instagram like or something? Him. Yes. I feel like he did. <laughs> yeah. All right. So as part of the book, Popova interviewed readers and writers about what all of this meant in terms of real-world implications. And here's a quote from Popova about their response. On the one hand, it is a source of knowledge about consent, and this knowledge is created by the whole community and focuses on lived experiences and emotions. On the other hand, it's also a space where they can creatively explore the issues that come across in their own life and make their own contributions to the community's knowledge. Fan fiction readers and writers take what they see as problematic mainstream text and rewrite them to suit their own needs. In this process, they seek to hold accountable both creators of mainstream media and, as we will see in the remainder of this chapter, each other for the kinds of representation they offer in key areas such as gender, sexuality, and consent. Fan fiction communities provide a space where readers and writers can make issues of consent and its representation in mainstream media visible, where they can name the problem of the normalization of sexual violence and coercive sexual practices as just sex, and where they can collectively come up with alternative ideas, knowledges, and imaginaries. All of this, in turn, allows fans not only to challenge dominant ideas of sex, sexuality, and consent, but also to understand and challenge the role of social institutions like the law and the criminal justice systems in sexual violence. Yeah, um, and one interesting point that this book drove home that we've sort of mentioned a little bit was the tagging on AO3, along with trigger and content warnings often placed at the top of chapters, which aside, it was really fun to read someone explaining fan fiction as someone who like knows it so well. <laughs> I got a kick out of it. <laughs> yeah, so like a lot of times you've got the tags that kind of tell you what you might be getting. Um, and then when you, at the start of every chapter, you usually have a trigger or content warning and you can click on it and it'll skip to the bottom of the chapter so you won't be spoiled. So, not all of them do it that way. Some, some of them just have it on the top. Um, and it'll be like, you know, here's what's happening in this chapter if you're worried about any of these particular things. And sometimes there'll be an author's note like, oh, this is, you know, where I was coming from with this and I wasn't in a good space or whatever it is. So you have all of that, which is indicating that the authors of this fan fiction are actively thinking about what they are writing and how it will and could be perceived and the health of those that read it, Um, including that of sexual abuse survivors who are largely women and also largely the audience. Readers interviewed discussed how important it was to their enjoyment in knowing whether the author intended to explore something problematic or was unaware that they were doing so. Quote, 
Through tags and other paratexts, authors can clarify their intent outside but adjacent to the main body of the fan work. Interviewees saw such clarifications as particularly important when it came to issues of consent. Blissey, somebody that was interviewed for this, summarized the importance of this communication channel outside the text. The tagging, I find that really important because that tells you that the person has thought through what they're writing. This comment shows that where issues of sexual consent feature in a work of fan fiction, readers find it important to know, and writers seek to show, that the author has consciously thought through them and deliberately chosen to explore them as part of the story. In particular, when the sexual situation depicted in the story includes elements of ambiguous or dubious consent, or as a depiction of rape, both readers and writers use the metadata around the story, such as tags, warnings, and author's notes, to determine whether these elements are deliberate. This stands in contrast to the kind of unsuccessful attempt to depict consexual sex we saw fanfiction readers and writers criticize in mainstream media. Fanfiction community members see situations they can identify as problematic or as violations due to power differentials involving dubious consent for other reasons or being outright non-consensual depicted in mainstream media as perfectly unproblematic, normal, consensual sex. In many cases, they are aware of having themselves absorb some of these attitudes to sex from media and of the work it has taken for them to unlearn some of them. And yeah, you you see this a lot. You'll see like the interactions between uh, like the authors and commenters and um, kind of this just ongoing discussion around it. And and authors will be really open about whatever they're, they're working through or, or why they wanted, wanted to explore something or why they depicted it a certain way. And I think, like I said at the top, that's been one of the biggest changes I've seen is I feel like Dubcon, when I first started reading fan fiction, was very much romanticized. And now it is very much not. <laughs> it is not at all. But they still exist, for sure. But people, like like they're, they're saying in all the quotes we've read, people will be like, hey, it's kind of problematic. You need to tag it this way. And that makes the person think about it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. I didn't really realize. And sometimes, you know, they might dig their feet in and be like, no, 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 no. But other times, a lot of the time, they'll be like, oh, okay, I didn't... I didn't realize, and then that just, that can shift a whole, like, then that person might start rethinking all these other things, and then it just spreads. Mm -hmm. And I have started thinking about, because as you know, I've written many fan fiction during lockdown. (laughs) There's one that I'm like, maybe I will publish this one. And I've started to think about how I would tag it. And it's been a really interesting thought exercise, because you really have to think about, like, how people will interpret it, anything that could be harmful, um, people. I mean, people tag, like, mental health issues. It kind of reminds uh, me of us when we're trying to capture right. in our trigger warnings all the things. <laughs> right. I mean, like, yeah, we talked about the fact that was content warning versus trigger warning mm-hmm. uh, and brief mentions of things because essentially we're not necessarily delving into specific mm-hmm. situations and we're not getting graphic, but still, just the topic alone, just hearing the word mm-hmm. could be like, eh, yeah. no. Um, which I find that interesting. I know we had that conversation when you were talking about trying to depict sexual violence in writing and how do you do it in a way that's not romanticized and or fetishized. Yeah. That's a big conversation in trying to figure out how do you do this in the best way that not only keeps you uh, mentally healthy, but Mm -hmm. others who are reading it. So it's it's a thing for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things about fan fiction in particular, because one of my big hangups is definitely, like, I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt anybody writing that. 
but also it just feels weird when it's like entertainment. Mm -hmm. And like, what is the value of showing this? But I feel like in fan fiction, because it is written mostly by women and marginalized people and read mostly by women and marginalized people who do have higher rates of experiencing that, then I think it, it feels different to me. Right. Where it still has to be done safely, don't get me wrong, and always ask like, why... What what is the what am I working through? What why is it that I want to write this? But it does feel different because it's something that we're kind of all working through. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. a lot of us, mm -hmm. as compared to like mainstream media, where I feel a lot like squickier about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Popova continues, this stance implicitly acknowledges that given the fan fiction community consists predominantly of women and non-binary people who statistically experience sexual violence at higher rates. A significant proportion of community members are or may be survivors of sexual violence. This acknowledgement is critical to understanding the importance the fan fiction community places on issues of sexual consent in both its creative output and its day-to-day -day practices. So the community actively chooses to center survivor safety and enable community members to give con informed consents to the kinds of content they are exposed to. This is in itself a form of cultural activism, a prefigurative act, a lived practice of how a world where sexual violence was not normalized would work. On issues of sexual consent in particular, fan fiction is a form of cultural activism. Readers and writers come together and as a community explore the kinds of difficult questions about consent that the dominant ideas in our society make all but unaskable. In their interactions with each other, their community practices, and their infrastructures, fan fiction readers and writers enact a praxis of consent, making their knowledges manifest in the real world. In this way, they show us what a world without rape culture might look like. Fan fiction then remains a crucial tool for developing our knowledge and understanding of consent. It continues to operate outside traditional knowledge production and valid structures. It builds on epistemologies rooted in lived experiences and at the same time accounts for and challenges our society's dominant ideas about sex. We will continue to need these kinds of new marginalized and subjugated knowledges for some time to come. Yeah, definitely. You have been spewing this for a while, and I say that <laughs> in a loving manner. But this really is one, even though there's, of course, toxicity any, in any community, especially in public forums, in yeah. internet world, all of that. But mm -hmm. it, it remains to be one of the most conscientious of platforms that exists in a way that does seem like kind of a hopeful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always one of those things. I, I could, obviously, I could talk about this forever and forever and go on. But there, there, to me, there's just such a need for it because you don't, if you don't see yourself represented for whatever reason, whether it's race or um, how you identify, whatever it is, or you don't see couples that you identify with, but you love these characters and you want to go and build, play in that sandbox, as they say, and then you get to interact with other people who also want to play and maybe you're super specific niche box and you have these conversations and you can tackle some really big things and people can be really supportive. Um, and I love, I love how people will like make fan art for something that people, fan fiction people wrote. And it's just, um, it has the potential to be really powerful and beautiful and a, and a lovely space. And yes, I do think I should just teach a class on fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's definitely improved. There's still, like you said, it, there's still some areas of toxicity 
I think one thing that I'm curious about is a lot of fan fiction is written by young girls. And when I was growing up and do it writing, I just feel like that can be I would I would implore everyone to be kind in their criticisms. Just because I think it absolutely you should, you know, raise the point, but you it could be a young girl who like really doesn't know or has like really struggling with some something. Um so always keep that in mind. And I do worry about Again, it's it's gotten way better, but I do worry about like the messages that you can get if you accidentally if you find a bad fan fiction, it can stay with you. It can mm-hmm. it can haunt you. And that's why tagging is so important. That's why it's so important, and also like to mine the tags. <laughs> I've, I've I've read some authors who are like, look, if you if it, if it, this tag and you know you can't handle it, please don't read. Like, please don't, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to think about you. And that's something else I've seen that's interesting lately. Is uh, for when I when I was growing up, I felt like you had to. Like say I'm writing fan fiction for constructive criticism because it's I want to be a better writer, which a lot of people still do, and that's great. But now some people have said like I don't want any criticism. I'm doing this for fun. If you don't like it, you can get out of here, right. which I kind of like. You're like, look, this is supposed to be the safe space, and y'all all <laughs> telling me I'm a terrible writer. Can you go? <laughs> um, if you yes. don't like it, just move on. Yes, yes. But it's just funny because I it used to be you had to defend your why you were writing fan fiction and now it's become very much like this is just for fun. Um, you know, if you want to leave a comment, just don't be mean about it because I'm really not looking to improve and that's just gonna mess my head up. <laughs> you tell me I'm a terrible writer. But yes, people are in my experience very open about the tags. Like they want to get that right. But yeah, uh fanish communities are far from a u- utopia. Fan fiction is no different. There's especially like little sex that are pretty problematic. Um, we see bleed over with issues um, from our entertainment at large there, like a prioritizing of the trauma of white characters. There's some really harmful and toxic content and behavior in the space. And that should always be called out. But I, overall, like I said, I've been it's been almost 20 years and I've really seen it change. And I've seen it become a more positive and supportive space where people are really thinking about others and and, and themselves, um, which is great, which is great. And I love this idea that it can be this tool for activism and having these conversations. I really love the book, if it wasn't clear. I know it was really quote heavy, but trust me, I cut out a bunch. <laughs> she did. I did, I did. I'm like, let's just read the whole book. Also, I really want to come back and talk about like ABO now because I really have a lot more thoughts after reading this book than I did before. <laughs> But today is not that day. <laughs> if you would like to get the book, we recommend it. You can find it. It is available now. Um, and as always, we love getting suggestions for you what our next book pick should be. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. Thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 